Hey everyone, welcome to Be The Change. My name is Lily Mott, and today I'm going to be talking about how change comes when you take the hard route. This week's guest is M. Odesser, and she is absolutely awesome. M is 20 years old, and she has a whole list of identities that I'm going to have her share with you because I don't want to leave anything out. M has a lot to say, and I can't wait for you to hear her. So let's get started. Hi, my name is Emma Desser. I'm a writer, feminist, uh, sex educator, mental health advocate. All of my work really centers around the intersections of sex, history, technology, and feminism. And I've done quite a broad range of different jobs, but they all kind of always factor down into those categories and just kind of trying to make the world like as safe and fun as possible for teenage girls. That's kind of my like final mission. Or I think in all of these different jobs, the thing that you can see has like the commonalities between them are kind of those. M's biggest project so far has been her work on Teen Eye magazine, which was a platform for creators under 19 years old to share their voices. It gained circulation on every continent except Antarctica and was read by millions of readers across the world. I asked Em to tell me more about the process to develop Teen Eye, and this is what she told me. Well, so I was like very, very online when I was a kid. When I was like 13 or 14, I had done like a bunch of like little fashion blogs. I had like a WordPress. I just like, I always wanted to talk about my opinions, I guess, online. And I spent a lot of time you know, researching femi- uh, researching fashion and researching art and researching culture. And I had all of these ideas and I'd post about them on my little Tumblr where I'd like do the HTML code for it myself. And I was like, wow, I'm like a tech wizard. And through that Tumblr, I uh, started talking to this kid named Zach Cannon, who was a year older than me. Uh, he was from Texas. And we had a lot of like similar ideas around how teenagers weren't really being represented in the media. And this was like, this was before a lot of like school shootings happened and before Trump was elected. And so teens really were just thought of as like a group of people who were too young to have any real opinions on issues that truly matter. And we were like, hey, we both know what we're talking about. We have a lot of spare time. Why don't we like create this magazine that we've always wanted to see happen like teenage uh well I guess what I really mean by that is that we wanted teens opinions to be heard we knew they were serious and smart enough and we weren't going to be getting that opportunity like business of fashion was not reaching out to 13 year olds who had never published articles before being like please tell us what you think about the future of the high fashion industry or like uh you know we we just didn't have that voice. So Teenai was created around that and Teenai is a pu- was a publication that ran from 2014 to 2017 or 2018 that was uh, creators ent- uh, entirely 19 or younger. So the whole publication except for like some photographers that we had in editorials, it was all completely run by teenagers and um, our issues were like 100 pages and you know we really str- like strove to have high 
editorial concepts and smart, interesting content that was showing what our generation could do. The world changed a lot, actually, between like the inception and then when when Trump uh, when Trump was elected, then T and I took a very different turn. M mentioned Trump's election as a turning point for young people and for Teen Eye Magazine in particular. M and I are the same age, and I can definitely say that the 2016 election played a role in shaping who I am today. So I asked M to elaborate on how the Trump election changed her perception of the world and how it changed Teen Eye. Well, Teen Eye was always very political because the people who were writing it were people who didn't have like a lot of traditional power. So we were always talking about, you know, like different hierarchies, different structures in whatever industry we were talking about. For me, like personally, I started out as a fashion writer. So I was talking about like fast fashion and like, why are there no black models in any runway shows and things that were still kind of the political issues we talk about today. Never directly about politics, always more about like activists or history or something like that. And then when Trump was elected, everyone became very interested in talking about like their identities and their political associations. And I think it became way more overt. And I think that because we all felt like so threatened and so upset by the administration, there was a huge push towards like, I'm trying to think about the exact words I would use to describe it. It became much more overtly political after Trump, for sure. And it was an interesting switch for the magazine, because that's also when teens started also being recognized as like a legitimate political force. So much of M's work is focused on empowering young people, and more specifically, young women. Teen Eye gave teenagers around the world a platform to voice their opinions, which is so unique in today's media culture. I asked Em, why do you find it so important to empower teen voices in particular with your magazine? And this was her answer. I knew and I still know so many absolutely amazing teenagers. And I think when you're like growing up and you're starting to look at the world around you, you're experiencing it for the first time and all of your emotions are so intense. And I don't know, teenagers just have like, a really special way of processing information because when you first are starting to be taken seriously in terms of like school, like you're going into high school, you're being, you're, you're seeing more of the world, you're being expected to soon be an adult and soon participate in everything. But you're also simultaneously being told the entire time that nothing you're doing matters, that you're not old enough to know what you're really experiencing. And it's kind of like, You know, we use that word gaslighting all the time, and I don't really want to use that, but it is kind of in a way just like, go sit down, sit in a corner, just like twiddle your thumbs or go on your phone. And then if anyone, if any teenagers, of course, do go on their phone, then it's like, oh my God, you're internet obsessed, you're crazy. I remember one of my, I was talking to a cousin at like some family thing when I was still working on Kenai, and he was like, you're a teenage girl, like, what do you know about the world? And I, oh, I had such a good quote, and now I can't. It was like, teenage girls know the world best, but we're not ever given the chance to like, it came out of the need to be taken seriously and being like, I know people in my generation are saying important things. Why the fuck aren't you listening to them? M wears many different hats as an activist, but her main platform is feminism and advocating for young women. I asked Em if she could pinpoint a moment that served as a catalyst for her activism, and this is what she shared with me. 
There were a couple. Like when I was really young, I, I had this club called Animal Patrol because I got mad at um, kids on the playground who were like smashing ants with rocks. And like, so me and my two best friends at the time, one of them who I'm still friends with today, which is pretty awesome. Um, hi, Taylor. We like started this little like Animal Patrol where we like raised money for, I don't even know, like shelters. But my first feminist activist thing was when I got dress coded in seventh grade, I think, in gym class. My It was right after Miley Cyrus went on her huge, controversial, growing up Robin Thicke incident at the, uh, was it like the MTV Awards? I don't know what it was. But like my teacher was like, oh my God, you don't want to be like Miley Cyrus. Like you guys don't want to be sluts. And it was because there were older men on the field who apparently had been seeing like the seventh grade gym class going outside on our school field and were like, oh, like it's too distracting. They need to change. So me and my friend made a huge stink. We were like, absolutely not. We're not going to be dress coded like this. And my older, I had a, I have an older sister who's two years older than me, who was in feminist organizations from a really young age. So because she was in my family and because she was always coming home and being like, this is rape culture, this is sexism, this is patriarchy, blah, blah, blah. I was able to like be like, hey, that's rape culture, that sucks. And then so that was like probably the first time, because I think about activism as something like going the hard route, doing something that's not maybe as easy as just sitting and going along with something and standing up for your beliefs in a way that is controversial. And yeah, that gym class was a very... (laughs) interesting class having a seventh grade teacher like call her student sluts was a really weird experience and so was being told that my body was inherently distracting one other giant incident was when brock turner was a rep for only three months i was very young in high school when that happened and seeing kind of how the legal system has just like completely failed survivors was also really huge for me. I got in like a huge fight. I lost a bunch of guy friends that day because they were all making like quote unquote rape jokes. And I think somewhere between seventh grade and sophomore year was when I was like, okay, I'm the feminist bitch. What's up? Like, let's do it. In an article for Teen Vogue, Em wrote about how she's skeptical of the women's march and the commodification of feminism. I asked Em to explore this perspective and explain why she finds some marches and protests to be problematic. So I've been writing about the commodification of feminism since I think like the first or the second issue on Teen Eye. We wrote about how like Chanel was doing those fashion shows where they were like holding up the protest signs and we were like, this just doesn't really run me the right way. And I've always been very cautious about feminism that doesn't feel inclusive, feels like it it has bad intentions behind it. I think that I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of people who are really genuine and care so much about social justice issues that when you see it in a way, and I'm not saying the Women's March is like a direct commodification of feminism. When you see certain things that are calling themselves feminist overtly, sometimes you wonder to yourself, I don't know, does this feel like my feminism to me? And that's not, that's more just about the commodification of feminism in general than the Women's March specifically. But with the Women's March, there were a couple of big problems that were like the um, anti-Semitism that apparently was happening behind closed doors between it. I was concerned with a lot of protests because they felt more like virtue signaling than like true 
authentic, like being moved to go out into the street. And I think when you see what's been happening in 2020, in 2020 with Black Lives Matter protests and how the, the difference in intention and the difference in mainstream reception of the two, it's kind of indicative of the fact that maybe a lot of the protests that were happening in 2016 and 2017 sometimes felt more like parades where there was a lot of virtue signaling. And I stopped going to protests in New York City in like 2017 because, or not 2017, maybe 2018, because I just like, I wasn't, I, I couldn't find the right groups to protest with. And it always felt like this very inauthentic thing where it was mainly like old white New Yorkers being like, whose streets are streets? And, you know, they were never talking about the actual issue. If somebody would chant about the actual issue, most of the time they would go silent. It's really astounding to be at a protest that says it's like embracing everyone. And then, you know, like in the Women's March in DC, Native activists were like chanting about uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline. And everyone around me just went silent as soon as they started talking about it. And it was like, how are you here giving yourself brownie points for saying that you care about these issues, but then you're completely shutting out the people who are, who are most affected by this. It felt very authentic. And I think that I have always been concerned about activism becoming a trend because it's really easy to dilute and then make it seem like it's super effective, but then really they just, you know, they pat you on the head and you don't really get to talk about the issues that matter. It's a good idea for people who are interested in feminism and activism and all of these amazing issues to be wary of what the most mainstream representation of these things are. That's not always saying that it's bad, but it is saying that sometimes can be virtue signaling or kind of hand in hand with capitalism in a way that makes it less effective. I thought M's perspective was really interesting because it calls attention to some of the problems facing activists today. As a young woman and a serious feminist, I wanted to get M's take on the upcoming Biden-Harris administration. I asked Em how she thinks the new president and VP will affect the feminist movement in this country. And this is what she told me. Well, okay, it's, I've, I have, um, I've been trying not to sound too pessimistic in interviews, but unfortunately, I, I, I'm not too convinced that the Biden-Harris administration is going to be what some people are calling kind of like the end to, you know, obviously Trump is out of office and that's a fucking fantastic win. I'm so happy. But I'm also, you know, the second it was out in New York, there were huge like maskless parties happening everywhere and everyone was like, oh my God, like the world is finally all better. We don't have to worry about any problems. And it's like, do you do you remember what both Biden and Harris has have stood for throughout their political careers? There are quite a lot of examples of both Biden and Harris doing significant damage to marginalized communities, whether that be like in terms of increasing policing, in terms of the Anita Hill incident. Biden and Harris are an improvement to Trump, but it doesn't mean that the fight is over. And I think that for people who are now like, wow, I don't have to worry about anything anymore. It's like, really? Because sex workers are going to be fucked. There, a ton of people are going to be fucked by this administration, like any administration, because the, <laughs> like the nature of the American presidency is that kind of 
not exactly a super feminist, super exciting, super inclusive thing. Like, this is going to have a real impact on people's lives, regardless of who's president. I'm a little bit skeptical of people who are not concerned about the Biden-Harris administration anyway, because I know from hearing from what my friends are saying and hearing what people in my communities are saying, it doesn't necessarily mean it's all fairies and rainbows from here on out. I think M raised some really important points about our political system and modern activism. So, of course, I was excited to ask her what advice do you most want to share with young people who want to make a difference around the world? And these are M's words of wisdom. Your school is not the extent of your community. Your town is not the extent of your community. If you can find a place in your hometown where you feel heard and feel accepted and feel like you can make a change, that's fantastic. But I know that I didn't. I had to turn to online resources. I had to turn to like nonprofits. I had to turn to, I had to look around for a little bit before I found a place that I really felt like I was accepted. But it doesn't mean that just because you don't feel accepted in your immediate environment, it doesn't mean that there isn't a place where you're going to feel safe and like, embraced and feel like you can say what you want to say and have the ideas that you want and yeah high school is not the the biggest place you will be and there's so much out there and there are so many people who are just like you and you know everyone told me that and I was like okay sure like whatever but it is really fucking true and so I think I'm saying this to teens who feel like trapped that, you know, the world is going to be bigger. And if you keep looking out, I promise you, you're going to find your people. I am so inspired by M. She talks a big game about how teens have opinions and important stuff to say, but she really walks the walk too. M knows her perspective is important, and she is doing everything in her power to make her own voice heard while inspiring other young people to do the same. M has pushed back against authority figures and the status quo when she could have just taken the easy route and changed her clothes and stayed quiet when people were making rape jokes. M knows what she's saying and doing is right, even if it may not be accepted or cool, because she knows that change comes when you take the hard route. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and you can follow M on Instagram at Emily Odesser to connect with her and learn more about her work. I also posted the link to her website in the description of this episode. If you want to talk about anything I mentioned, please reach out to me by email at lily at bethechangepodcast.org or on Instagram at bethechangepodcast. Tune in for my next episode, but until then, be the change you wish to see in the world. Bye, guys.